Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Though I may need to change that anagram, uh, I don't really like being associated with ESPN anymore. And it was kind of a clever play on the terminology. I'll talk about that toward the end of today's housekeeping segment. But what are you going to talk about today? It's a Monday, so you might be spe- uh, expecting a feedback show. It's actually going to be a listener call show. I am changing the schedule up a little bit. And so today we're going to do the call show that we didn't do on Friday. Trying to just get things churned up here a little bit. Uh, before we do that, though, and before I tell you what I'm upset with ESPN about, which most of you probably already know, you can infer that from what I did on Friday, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Uh, you know, if you have not gotten Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD yet, which is called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, you really need to. If you are concerned with feeding yourself off your own property at any level. Uh, I don't care whether you have a tenth of an acre in the city or ten acres in the country. Her system will work for you. It's the most extensive overview of turning your backyard into a food production system that I have ever seen. I would ask you to consider adding it to your knowledge library. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation. And of course, he's up there in Illinois. But wherever you are, if you put together a group of people for training, he will come and set up training right in your own backyard. So whether you travel to his school in his range or have him come to you, make sure you add firearms training to your firearms stuff, right? Every, I need to get a new gun. What gun should I buy, Jack? How long has it been since you've had a firearms training course? If it's more than a year, how about another course before another gun? Uh, I'll tell you what. Everybody thinks they're going to be able to handle the situation when it comes your way. You will fall back to your to your highest level of training is what will happen, uh, not your highest level of practice. And I think it's important that if we're going to walk around armed, that we also walk around with the knowledge of how to use that armament properly, legally, and effectively in a situation. And I think a lot of people in their minds have a vision of what a bad situation turning into a citizen having to shoot and use the Second Amendment right is going to be like. And whatever you think it is, it's probably not going to be that because we don't get to pick our disasters uh, that's something I say all the time. And uh, getting into a situation where you have to take another person's life is a disaster. And hopefully it's a disaster that you come out and everyone around you comes out okay and the bad guy goes away. But you don't get to pick that disaster just like you don't get to pick any other disaster. And however you think it's going to be, it won't. And that means you need to be mentally and physically prepared to deal with it. If you're going to carry, make sure you get some training, even if it's not with Frank. Uh, next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And we were just talking about ammo there. So remember, one of our other sponsors, BulkAmmo.com, is running a great contest. They're giving away over $500 in ammunition this month to TSP listeners. All you have to do is ask a question on their website. I will put a link in today's show notes and remind you of where you 
can get all the information about that contest. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it's a great contest. It's a lot of free ammo, and uh, you should take a shot at it because you really have a great chance of winning. There's only so many people going to play that, and they are giving, I think it's like five prizes. So uh, maybe it's maybe it's more than $500 in ammo then, because uh, I think it's three or, it's either three or five prizes, and it's at least $500 worth of ammo, but check it out. Next up, remember to connect with me um on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I already said that, guys. I'm a little bit off today. Sorry about that. Uh, probably because I'm thinking of some other things. But last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps uh, qualify for a national service discount. Just send me details of your service uh, by email, and I'll send you the discount code before you join. Uh, now let me talk a little bit about this, uh, this stuff with uh, ESPN, Fox News, and Hank Williams Jr. I played Hank's song at the end of the show. I got a lot of emails from people telling me, Jack, this is not the First Amendment because it's not free speech, it's contract. I know. I never said it was about the First Amendment. And on Facebook, I got some really whiny people saying that, that, oh, that, that Hank Williams Jr. did some really bad stuff. And for those not familiar with the story, I'm going to give you the whole story instead of the twisted, segmented story that you may have heard elsewhere. What happened is Frank, or Frank, Hank Williams Jr., went on Fox and Friends uh, morning show, not to discuss politics, to discuss his father's new commemorative box CD set coming out. And um, it was asked several times about political issues, and basically, come on, guys, I don't want to do this. And uh, eventually was, was jaded into making a comment. And the comment that he made was basically watching Obama and Boehner play golf together while they're supposedly so diametrically opposed to these issues happening in the United States would be like Netanyahu playing golf uh, with Hitler. Which got immediately twisted into, <gasps> Hank Williams Jr. called Obama Hitler. Well, first of all, I don't really care if he did. How many people called Bush Hitler? And none of the people that were whining and crying over this seemed to care when that happened. Uh, but he didn't. Anybody who's, you know, like ever taken an SAT test knows what an analogy is. And he was making it an analogy that these people are supposed to, Boehner and Obama are supposed to be, you know, fighting each other. There they are, having golf together, farting around. Uh, so that's, that's part of the story. But it gets worse. Uh, there were comments and parts of the interview that led up to that that would have made it very clear uh, that it, it was being twisted by Fox and Friends. They were removed from the segment that aired. So people didn't see everything that was said and everything that led up to it. They twisted it and made it look one certain way. The next thing is that ESPN then immediately pulled uh, all my rowdy friends from, uh, from Monday Night Football. And people say, well, he got fired. No, ESPN's a bunch of cowards. All right, ESPN are a bunch of cowards. They want to have it both ways. Um, they did not fire Hank Williams Jr. Hank Williams Jr. is under contract with them until May of next year, and they are paying him in full. So all the people that are being appeased by this should know ESPN's lying to you. They are paying Hank every single penny that he would have gotten, whether his, his uh, song aired or not. Okay? So what they want to do is they want to appeal to the whiny crybabies that are all upset over this because they don't even know what happened. And they also don't want to face a lawsuit because they would lose. 
because they would lose. And those of you that say this just as a business decision, let me ask you a question. If you went out and said, I don't like the current president for whatever reason, or I think the current president did something that's stupid, or anything else that you wanted to say about a president or a congressman or anybody, should your employer be able to fire you? Should your employer be able to fire you? Especially if your job has nothing to do with politics at all. If you work in a factory making freaking widgets and you got interviewed by somebody and you said the current president is an ass clown, should your employer be able to fire you? And the answer should be, without the Jeopardy music, absolutely not. So there's the full story and the abbreviated version thereof. And I was asked today on Facebook, why, with all the injustices in the world, are you getting so upset about this, Jack? Because if they can do it to Hank Williams Jr., they can do it to you. That's why. Because in a world where a country music singer playing music with a license deal with a major uh, media outlet like NFL football, neither of which have anything to do with politics whatsoever, can make a comment, have that comment completely twisted and taken out of context, and immediately be terminated in the way the public views it anyway, um, it can happen to you. That's why. And if you don't see that, I'm sorry. Right? You need to wake the hell up, and you need to see it. And it's what's coming. And it's, we're going to get into a world where you're not allowed to say anything negative about anybody if that person happens to be in power right now. Where a congressman uh, calls the president a liar to his face on national TV during an address and gets censored. You know what somebody should have asked? Was was the president lying when he was called a liar? Just saying. So there you go. I'm going to let it go to rest for now. I had to say something about it today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start taking your calls right now. If you want to be on a segment like this with your question or comment, the number to dial is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Let's go ahead and take that first call now. Hey, Jack, it's Ray from Kentucky again. Hey, I just had a quick thought I wanted to run by you to get your opinion on. have a firebox that's uh, one of the ones that provide a little no physical security. It's shaped like a briefcase. You could just be walked out with. Uh, very easy to pop open. Uh, so I was trying to find some place that was uh, inconspicuous to put this thing, and I uh, couldn't think of anywhere where it wouldn't at least be stumbled upon eventually. Someone was rummaging around. So um remembered your episode on the Kitchenistas. And since I only use my oven about once every couple of weeks to bake bread and fix most everything on the range, I don't use it that much. And I figured not very many burglars uh, run straight to the oven to see what kind of goodies are inside. And it's also got a level of extra fire protection. So just want to get your opinion, your thoughts, and... Um, I can't see much wrong with it, and I think you're right. I think somebody breaking into a home, one of the last places they're going to check while they're trying to ransack the place and get their hands on whatever they can is inside your stove. So I, I, I think that it's probably not a bad place. In general, what I've always advised people with most houses, though, is if you can find a place where you can actually cut floorboards and create a storage area below the floor. And in some houses you can, in some houses you can't. If you've got a slab foundation, um, it can be done. 
Uh, you can actually put a really great safe into a house with a slab foundation, but you're going to have to bring somebody in, a safe installer, to do that. And they can drill a drop safe into your foundation, and that's actually a great way to go. But some houses have, you know, kind of a, a wooden floor uh, or enough room in a subfloor that you can create hiding places in there. And I think if you can create that, uh, it's probably the best place in your home, uh, especially if you put it somewhere where you'd have to move something like a dresser or whatever to access it. Uh, you know, certainly that's not why you want to put your home defense gun or something like that. Well, hold on, let me pull it, push it out of the way or what have you. Um, but that's kind of the, the best thing. But I think that there's, there's definitely some validity in what you're doing. Certainly if you forget it's in there and turn the oven on, you're not going to burn it up or nothing because it's fire safe. Um, I would, I wouldn't rely on it. You know, if it's the best you can do, it's the best you can do. It's not personally what I would do, but I can't fault it. Um, but here, this is the reason I played this really instead of just like, Looking this guy up and, and emailing him, my brief answer was, I thought this would be a fun one. Folks, why don't you guys all chime in on today's episode? Just go to the site, look up episode 764, and uh, in the comments section, give your ideas for where to hide stuff in houses or on your homestead and how to cache stuff. I mean, don't be too specific. You don't want to give away exactly what you're doing, but if you have little hidey holes you've created or caches you've created or things like that and ways that you know, make sure the stuff's safe and highly secured, let us know about it. And with that, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake. I've got a quick question for you, kind of in honor of Ron Hood. Uh, I was recently at a medical supply place where I, I saw that they had Betadine for sale and that it does have an expiration date, and it got me to thinking of one of Ron Hood's episodes in which he talked about resublimated iodine crystals as a form of water purification. Those are iodine crystals that can be uh, used to create a saturated iodine solution, which then could be poured into water to purify water. And my question is, do you know if that solution or those crystals could somehow be used to create a disinfectant like betadine or iodine as a first aid uh, use? So kind of a dual use there for water purification and possibly medical treatment uh, in, the, in the woods or whatnot. Uh, and I'd appreciate uh, hearing from you and any input you have on that. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Well, that's a great question, and it's an answer uh, that I didn't have uh, off the top of my head. Uh, I do remember the DVD where Ron showed how to do this, and I won't give specifics here. I'll say you can know, get Ron's DVD if you want to learn how to do this. I'll figure out which one it was and put a link in today's show notes for you. Um, but basically what Ron taught people to do was get a little glass jar, and into that, put some of these resublimated iodine crystals. And then you put water in that jar, and you leave it sit there for a period of time. And then you add it to a specific amount of water. And it's important that you do this in the right ratios, because if you were to take that and drink it straight out of that bottle, it's poison. right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too many parts per, per million or what have you. Uh, if you were to drink it straight down, uh, it's something that needs to be diluted in a larger volume of water, and then it makes that water safe to drink. It makes it completely safe to drink. And it is a brilliant thing. And it pretty much, once you have this little bottle in your kit, it, it just about lasts forever. It, uh, Ron said he's never used one up to where the crystals were gone. So it's really a cool thing. But on whether or not that would work uh, for first aid on a wound or something like that, I didn't know the answer. I thought it probably would. It seems like it, it, it definitely would, honestly. Uh, it is definitely a lower concentration than, you know, iodine that you get for that use. Uh, but I figured the best thing I could do since I couldn't ask Ron any longer was ask Karen. 
uh, Karen, uh, Karen Hood, of course, Ron's, Ron's wife. And uh, here's what she said. It's a good question, and Ron liked it when his students thought outside the box. He would have said, good thinking. In any survival situation, what you need to do is use what you have on hand. The iodine solution will kill germs, and you could very well use it as a mild disinfectant if you don't have anything else. One caveat, though, make sure you're not allergic to iodine and that the person you are treating with the solution is not allergic. A few people have severe allergic reactions to iodine, so it would be counterproductive if that was the case. It certainly won't hurt and would most likely help. Using what you have on hand in a survival situation is what Ron taught, and the use of the iodine solution, even though a milder solution, the solutions that hospitals use, would be wise to use if you had no other bacteria-killing solutions for your wounds, Uh, and you were out in the field. Thanks for asking, Jack, and thanks for the beautiful article you wrote for the magazine. A uh, little side note on that, Survival Quarterly's next edition coming out will be a tribute to the Woodmaster, uh, my friend Ron Hood, and uh, I wrote a little article for that tribute edition called, in fact, that my friend Ron Hood. Uh, I can probably not read it on the air, and the reason I can probably not read it on the air is I don't know that I could get through it without um, without breaking my voice and uh, shedding some tears. Uh, Ron is a great friend and a brother, and I know that one day he and I will walk in wilderness trails together again, and he'll probably have a fire going with a little bit of uh, marmot or whatever the equivalent at the next plane of existence is, and uh, I look forward to seeing my friend in the future and I'm glad that the work he did is still teaching people today. So thank you very much for calling in with that question, and thanks to Karen for providing such a great answer. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, my name is Chad, and I go by Jack Bauer on the forums. I've got a wife and six kids and a dog and several cats. We live in northeast Oregon, and uh, we're an LDS family, so we've been this around preparedness all our lives, but since we've been listening to the survival podcast before we ramped up our efforts and I can't tell you how many hundreds of dollars we've saved just from our garden alone this year we got a big garden Jack Spirico is a household name and uh, all my little kids know who you are uh, we live in a rain shadow from near my mountains and the ground around our place is kind of gentle uh, low rolling hills the problem is it's dry because we're in the rain shadow we have infrequent rains during the summer and the fall um Occasional rains in the spring and four to six inches of snow during the winter. And I want to put in, uh, soils on contour and ponds in the draws. Our problem is we have thousands of ground squirrels, prairie dogs, and the badgers that eat them and coyotes that eat them. And they all dig holes. Some of them are big gaping deep holes. My question is, would it be worth going through all the effort of, uh, the work of swaling the contours? and building the ponds if the squirrels and the badgers and the coyotes are likely to dig them all up. Thanks, Jack. GSP going strong, man. But On some levels, the answer is you ain't going to know till you try. But let's talk about you got two entirely different structures we're talking about building here. A swale is not a pond. It is a great way to put tremendous amount of water into the land and hydrate the land. The damage that would be done by a prairie dog or a ground squirrel or something like that digging a hole in a swale bank is almost inconsequential. 
Uh, and also remember that a swale is a ditch on contour, and the dirt that is put on the downhill side is not compacted. It's loose, friable soil, and any kind of burrowing activity in there is probably going to be caving in on the little critters uh, faster than they can burrow. Even if they drill, dig some holes in it and all, the ditch itself is there and designed to hold and put the water in the land. If they went and dug a hole in the ditch, the water's still going to go down in the dirt. Uh, the permaculture would look at all the little burrows that are made by these critters uh, and see it as an advantage. It would be a way to get more and more water into the earth. Jeff Lawton did a project where they put in over three kilometers of swale, and where they weren't swelling, they took and they ripped the land, which is basically you take a great big dozer with a thing that looks like a giant plow blade, and you put it down in the ground, you know, about you know two meters, six feet deep, and you just just rip a giant, you know, hole, uh, a giant trench, basically. Uh, it's really actually very narrow, and it will actually cave in on itself, but you've opened it up, and he did that in between the swell systems. So I don't see that as being a problem at all. Um, could you impound a dam and have the dam damaged by your ground squirrels and things like that? Maybe... But again, I, I don't know that you're going to have that much of a problem there. When I was just in Estes Park, Colorado at Rocky Martin National Park, uh, we did a hike up by Bear Lake, Nymph Lake, and several other lakes that we went. We went about, I guess, about four, four or five miles on this trail and then came back and went around all these lakes, uh, little lakes that were, you know, ranging from, I would say, a half acre to a couple acres in size up in the mountains. There were ground squirrels everywhere. Everywhere we looked, we saw ground squirrels. I didn't see any of the dams failing due to their activity. So I don't know that I would be that concerned about it. Um, if you think about it, uh, if you do have some activity on a dam breast, it would be pretty easy to set traps there and start trapping the little critters out and uh, make them decide it was a better you know, idea to go elsewhere. But the swales, I wouldn't even concern myself with. So, And I think that this is an important thing to bring up here. Swales can do more than dams for you when it comes to growing stuff. Dams have a lot of great stuff. You can do some aquaculture there and there's some fish and they look good and they're nice. But they take a lot of work. There's a lot of energy required to build even a quarter acre dam. Uh, you have to take all that earth. You have to move it. You have to pack it down. A swale, once you've marked where your swale is, is pretty much you know your track hoe or back hoe or excavator. Dig, drop, dig, drop, dig, drop. And in a couple hours... Uh, you can put in a tremendous amount of swale, uh, do a tremendous amount of, of good for your property, your land, and uh, not really have to worry about it much after that other than planning into the system itself. So um, if I were having to make a decision, do I swale or do I put in a dam, unless I had an ideal dam site, uh, I know I'm going to get a, let's put it this way, I wouldn't maybe make a decision, but I'm going to put in a lot more swale than I am going to try to put in damp surface area. Dam holds the water in a location it gets evaporated. A swale can go for a mile. You know, it can be a mile, even if it's multiple swales, you know, let's say you had uh, a, a, a fifth of a mile property line, uh, you could put in five swales and you have a mile of swale. That could be done, you know, in a day with one piece of excavation equipment. And uh, it, it's pretty simplistic technology and I think that's sometimes why it's not really appreciated for how um, how useful and how functional it is and how well it actually works. So definitely look to the swales on the dams. I wouldn't hold off on it. Uh, I really wouldn't worry about it, but if you start having some burrowing activity in your dam breast, you're going to have to take you have to, you know, if you're going to do the dam, be willing to kill the little critters if they start tunneling in there. 
But from what I saw and my experience is it's not been an issue. You could also, if you're only doing one dam, maybe do a concrete spillway or something like that to help mitigate the damage the little guys could do to you. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jonah, Long Beach, California. What would be the most efficient or the best way to turn anyone's lawn into ground to start producing stuff? That's basically my question. I'm sure there's a method or it's a better method to turn anyone's average lawn or a large section of it into something I could use to um, start growing things in. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, this is actually a pretty simple one, and there's really two ways to do this. Really three, but you know, really two main ways. The the main way that most people would do this is you would go out and cut sod and 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 remove the grass from an area, maybe turn it over and bury it, and uh, put put in your garden beds that way and start planting into them by, and then amend the soil with mulch and compost. Uh, possibly putting in raised beds, just or just doing you know beds in the ground or what have you, depending on what you want aesthetically in your front yard. And that would be one way to do it. And that's the kind of high energy way. It means it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of energy to get it done. And uh, but you get very very quick results. You could you basically do this on a weekend. If you're going to do that, I would advise that you go out to like Home Depot or some or Lowe's or something like that, or you know rent a center or what have you, and rent a piece of equipment called a sod cutter which will make your life much easier and make your entire project go much faster. Now, if you want to do this the easy, low-tech permaculture way, we go out and we get a bunch of cardboard. And I don't care if Paul Wheaton says it won't de de degrade. It does, unless you put it somewhere where it won't. And there's things like if you put it under a tree and just honestly, if you do this in a lawn, it's going to work for you. Take great big cardboard boxes, lay it out in the pattern that you want your garden to look like. On top of it, put about 4 to 10 inches of mulch and wait six months to plan into that. And that's that's the super low-tech, easy way to do things. And and uh, it's the way that Bill Mollison's been teaching people to do things for a long time. If that's not what you're asking, I'm not sure what you're asking. Uh, that's that's what I'm getting out of this. I don't know if you're really maybe wanting to know what to plan or, you know, what you need to do other, you know, as far as, like, if you've been fertilizing your lawn to get more into an organic state or what have you. But the reality is... I don't care what you've been putting on your lawn for fertilizer. If you stop doing it, it'll take care of itself very, very quickly as long as you're bringing in things for fertility. The big thing here, though, and it's not just whether you're turning a lawn. I don't care if you're turning a lawn or a barren field uh, into a garden. Odds are the land's been abused in some way, shape, or form, either through erosion and runoff and mismanagement or chemicals or what have you, and the fertility sucks. Right, So if you want to fix the fertility issues, you need to bring in lots of organic matter, lots of compost, lots of manure. And I think there's a lot of gardeners out there that are unhappy with the results because they won't fertilize. They take fertilizer, and I'm not even talking, I'm talking about organic fertilizer here. I'm not talking about NPK, uh, you know, from, from Miracle Grow or what have you. Um, but I mean, they just think, well, if I use, you know, manure and I use compost, I shouldn't have to put any kind of a fertilizer on. Manure, uh, composted manure, compost all have a, a you know, not NPK ratio. Generally, what you end up with, with most of those is a 1 1 1. Right? So if you're growing at 100%, uh, you get a pretty good balanced mix there, but that stuff gets used up and then hopefully you're putting plants back in, maybe you're growing some legumes for nitrification and all, but you're still weak in some nutrients and some minerals. So using soil amendments like lava sand 
and, and green sand will do a lot to help with the mineral and the moisture retention. But don't be afraid to go out and get a good quality, um, you know, high nitrogen fertilizer, especially for high feeders like, you know, uh, corn. If you're growing corn, I mean, you, you need it. Uh, and probably the best thing you can use is blood and bone. Uh, blood and bone from poultry is, is a great fertilizer. Uh, fermented molasses is another, or fermented beet molasses, uh, is another great organic fertilizer. Miracle Grow, some people don't like them, but they have some really good organic products. And, uh, their, their liquid organic fertilizer is basically fermented beets, is what it's made out of. It's very high in nitrogen. It's not real high in potassium and, and uh, phosphorus. Uh, you, you know, need to bring some other things in to take care of that, but, uh, it's a great way to, to intermittently feed. So, one thing I wanted to make sure I added to this with, with you guys with your gardens, if you're not getting the results you want, fertilize, not just compostize. Compost has a lot of nutrient value in it, but generally, especially as you're establishing a garden, you're building up a growing system, first couple of years, you really need to bring some fertilizer in. If you just have great, beautiful soil where you're able to grow without it, fine. Basically, my rule with fertilizer is I fertilize enough to make the plants grow the way they're supposed to. And when they start growing the way they're supposed to, I back off. And if I start to see them getting weak, having a little bit of discoloration, not really thriving, um, and everything else seems right, I'll bring fertilizer in. And almost, I would say, nine times out of ten, as soon as you give them that little shot of fertilizer, they're off back to the races again. You can stay natural and fertilize. There's lots of great natural fertilizers out there. Another good one to look at is Garrett Juice from Harold Garrett. That's a great natural foliar and soil soak uh, uh, fertilizer. But make sure you're doing more than just throwing compost on there. A lot of times with your compost... Um, it's not completely done when you, especially when you're buying it or what have you, and it continues to break down in the soil, and some of the nutrients aren't released for a significant amount of time. That's great for building a stable system, uh, but those high-feeding vegetables need some stuff early on too, so make sure you're fertilizing as well. A little extra stuff there. I don't know if you were asking kind of more into that range or just the first, how do I convert the grass into a good place to grow stuff, but there's both answers whether it's what you were looking for or not. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Sarah Jackson calling from Denver, Colorado. I just had a quick question um, kind of about blogging. Um, I was just wondering what web design um, manufacturer, I guess, that you use. I've been trying to look and find some online. haven't had a whole lot of luck, so I was just wondering if there's anybody that you directly recommend or that you have had success with as I don't want to kind of pay for something sight unseen and then, you know, get screwed out of the deal. Anyways... I appreciate all the work that you do. Um, My name again is Sarah Jackson, and it is at simplyhillbilly.com. Thanks a lot. So I don't do a lot of web design, web marketing questions. I occasionally do an episode on building a business, but I thought this would be a good one to answer on the air uh, in spite of the fact that I don't usually go deep into this. But the, the lady who designed the website in its current form is a lady named Jackie Dana, and uh, she is uh, the, the head of a company called Getting Dirty Designs, and you can find her at gettingdirtydesigns.com, and I can't recommend her highly enough. She did uh, a great job on the site. The header on the website, though, was actually designed by Tiffany Rockwell, who runs the gear shop. All of us who are on the forum know her, of course, as Sister Wolf, and she's a great graphics designer. Uh, so th- those are the two resources I rely on the most. I will say this, though. 
Odds are, if you go out and you go to a place like Rent-A-Coder and you look and you, uh, you, you put in some, uh, request to have a site design, you know what you want, you're going to get good results there, especially if you use coders who have had good recommendations in the past. I think this is something that gets heavily overthought, and uh, I, I look at it this way. Um, if you put $500 into a design job on your site, and a year later you decide you don't like it anymore and you're going to do a redesign, that's just part of being in business. Um, and I'll also tell you this. The odds are that you can do uh, very well without h hiring a designer at all. Uh, if you're just starting up a blog or something like that and you want it to look unique. Um, I actually used a theme, and that theme was called Adalupa, and at least that's the way I think it's pronounced. But if you want to write it down, it's A-T-A-H-U-A-L-P-A, A-T-A-H-U-A-L-P-A, Adalupa. And um, the, the design Jackie did was basically recreating what that theme does because something happened Uh, and one of our server moves where my database got corrupted and it was impossible for me to reinstall that theme into WordPress. And my point here is that there are a billion free themes for WordPress and most of the quote-unquote design work is a header and a footer. So in most instances, you should just go out and find a theme that you like the look and feel and functionality of and then hire a graphics person to design a header and footer for you. And if you don't know graphics design, you're probably going to be much better off paying a couple hundred bucks for that work, trying to do it yourself, uh, spending hours and hours and hours working on it and not really being happy with the end result. But if you want a full custom theme done, Jackie Dan at Getting Dirty Designs, great, great person to work with. Uh, did a lot to help me get through some compatibility issues with multiple different browser platforms and things like that. And uh, again, our website, gettingdirtydesigns.com. And uh, she'll do a great job for you. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Fred from Chicago. I just wanted to call and let you know that I attended last weekend uh, Frank Sharp Jr.'s Uh, Fortress Defense, uh, level one handgun course. It was a 20 hour course. Uh, you know, it was, uh, fairly inexpensive and, uh, thought it was the best, uh, you know, couple hundred dollars that I'd spent in a very long time. And I feel, uh, you know, much more equipped with my handgun and able to defend myself and my family. So just wanted to call in and give a kudos for your recommendation. I called and, and, uh, you know, spent the weekend with, with Frank and his team training and it was amazing. Thanks very much. I don't have a lot to add. I just do like to occasionally when a listener has an experience with a show sponsor, specifically, you know, kind of an on-site, face-to-face, hand-to-hand experience and wants to share it. I want to let that be shared with others because I know there's a general, you know, skepticism about any sponsorship, even the way that I do it with uh, having to be approved and all, and the listeners at council that are made up by the moderators on the forum. That of course, Jack says, Fortress Defense is a great place to go get your training. Uh, they give them a check every year to be a sponsor on the show. Uh, but when listeners call in and say it, I think it has a level of credibility that exceeds that. Uh, my big thing is I want you to make sure, it, again, like I said, because Fortress Defense just happened to be the sponsor today, um, if you can't get to Illinois, if it's Frank's not the guy you want to work with, you know, that, that, that's all good and well. I think he's a great guy to work with. I really hope you will. But what, the, what I hope more than anything else is you'll take training and not just, you know, defensive handgun training. Go to an apple seed shoot. Um, take as much firearms training as you can. Become as competent as possible, uh, in all different disciplines. It, it doesn't do you any good to be super Mr. Combat and what happens is the shit hits the fan. You need a rifle to feed yourself and you can't put a squirrel out of a tree. 
So you need to be very, uh, very multidisciplined as far as I'm concerned with your firearms training. Just an additional thought there. But, uh, hey, caller, thanks for letting us know about your experience there. And again, folks, uh, I really recommend you get as much training as you can when it comes to your firearms. Let's take another call. Good day, Mr. Spearco. I, uh, have noticed that you have been advocating recently holding cash. And I am looking for a definition of what that means. Does that mean that you advocate leaving the cash with a financial institution as opposed to paper investments like stocks? And the financial institutions I'm speaking of would be banks, credit unions, whatever else is available. Or is the lean towards pulling the cash out of the institution and, for lack of a better term, sequestering it within the mattress. Your clarification would be appreciated. Uh, by the way, my name is Bill. My last name is Sutter. I'm in southwest Ohio. Thanks for everything you do. Take care. Well, Bill, you're not a real energetic presenter, man, but I love the, the conclusion there. This is my name, and this is where I'm at. And I wish more people out there were like that, folks. So before I answer Bill's question, let me just point out to you, um, if you're trying to hide who you are, you probably aren't doing a good job of it anyway, and it's probably about time a lot more of us just stood up and said who we are, where we're from, and what we're all about. And until we do that, we're not going to turn the country around. We're really not. Uh, we have to stop being afraid to be known. Uh, this this whole OPSEC thing can be taken to extremes. Now, does that mean I think you should drive down the street with a bumper sticker that says, I live at so-and-so address and I have lots of gold and food in my house? No, I do not. But I think being afraid to even say who you are and where you're from, I would I would say follow Mr. Sutter's example here. By the way, my name's Jack Spierko. I'm from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and my office is in Hot Springs Village. You want to come see me, I'll be happy to talk to you. All right. Now, uh, next up on the question, um, the answer is yes. Alright, so, uh, do I hold it in a bank? Do I hold it in a safe deposit box? Or do I hold it in my house? Yes. Uh, and it depends on how much you have and what you're gonna do with what you have. If you only had a thousand dollars in cash to your name, well you might as well have a nice firebox, keep it in your house and have it accessible. Uh, if you have, you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars in cash to your name, well then that, I wouldn't want all in one place anyway. Um, so this is kind of my belief, that some of your cash should be in a normal, plain old, plain Jane savings and or checking account, and probably both. And I recommend you have both types of accounts with a bank. I recommend you use a smaller bank, not a bank that is quote-unquote too big to fail, uh, a local bank that you know. And if the, any type of warning signs start popping up, you just open up an account with another bank that doesn't have those warning signs and move your money over. You can do it in a day. It's about as much fun as going to the dentist, but it really ain't that hard to do. In fact, if you're smart, what you'll do is you'll open up accounts in two different banks and uh, just keep, uh, you know, one will be your main bank you do business with, the other one you keep a couple hundred bucks in, and that way if you ever need to move money, you just move it straight in. You write yourself a check and deposit it or what have you, uh, and that way you have the flexibility without having to go through that at a time when maybe everybody's panicked over a bank thing, something like that. So that's a simple, easy way to do that. Two banks, two bank accounts. Uh, one, you have just, you know, you have like, you know, a passport savings, you know, minimal thing. Cause it's much easier once you move your money in there to change the classification of your account and go in and set one up again. So there you go on the bank. I also recommend that you get yourself a safety deposit box. 
Uh, there's banks where you can get them for as little as about $20 a year. And I recommend you keep the majority of your silver and cash in there. It is safer than in your home no matter what you do with it. And then I recommend you keep some portion of cash and or silver and gold in your home. And I recommend you have those three different locations. Uh, following two is one is one and is none. And resiliency. You've got to have some on hand. Because if their electricity is out, you can't get to the bank, it's closed, whatever, you need that. But it does make sense to have money in the institution and then kind of, I look at safety deposit boxes as an interim. And in between being with the institution or not. It is defined under the Patriot Act, thank you Mr. Bush, as a financial relationship. So it is subject to search. It is subject to seizure. You do have to remember that. And if you get yourself into a position where you start to worry about that and you have a safe pause box, you might want to go in and take whatever's in it out of it before someone goes and puts a lockdown on it uh, of some type of legal proceedings. Uh, but it, it has some real advantages from a security standpoint. And while, yes, it's a financial relationship, as far as the nature of the relationship is undisclosed, in that box could be important paperwork or could be $2 million worth of gold, and no one really knows whether it's one or the other or somewhere in between. So I recommend the majority of your cash in a bank account, all right, a good, quality, safe, FDI-insured bank account, some in a safe deposit box along with some other valuables that you want to keep as some resiliency. So if your house burns down or somebody robs your house or a tornado blows your house down and blows away your fire safe when it happens, you still have the majority in a safe, secure location, and you do have some stuff on hand. That's what I mean when I say hold cash. When I, actually, when you hear me say it, uh, basically I'm not even talking about which format. I'm usually, when I hear me say, don't be afraid to hold some cash, I'm talking to the people that are like, I have money and I don't know what to invest in and I think all, everything's dangerous right now. Don't be afraid to hold cash. Right? That's more what it's about. I don't, whatever form you want to hold it in is your individual choice. But people that are so scared, if I hold cash, inflation's going to get me, man, stop thinking that way. Um, you know, and unless you got a place where you know you're going to get an 18% return or something like that, uh, what do you, what good is risking your money uh, and losing half to try to beat inflation? Right now, there are lots of places out there to get your legs broken in the financial world. Um, when I had Carl Denninger on, what he said was very simple. I don't let the sun go down on my money. And what he meant by that was if he goes into a trade, like he's going to buy a stock or short a stock or trade something, he com or do a currency uh, you know, forex transaction, before he goes to bed, he puts his money back into cash. He doesn't sleep with his money at risk. Uh, if he's doing that, I think we can learn a lot from that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris from Cincinnati. I apologize for the last call, and they got to erase it. My dogs went crazy. Somebody came to the door. So and I get straight to the point. I'm referring to, I just finished listening to the show. It was kind of like a doom and gloom uh, financial collapse type uh, situation and uh, where the gentleman was on there talking about ways that we could, uh, you know, eliminate this or stop it from happening before it got to that point. And uh, a couple of the examples that he gave was basically taking, uh, getting rid of about half our police and uh, some teachers and, uh, going back to volunteer fire service. Um, with those suggestions, I just want to throw out there that uh, I myself am a professional firefighter and paramedic uh, in, uh, in Ohio, and um, along with uh, plenty of the other brothers that I serve with in our service, um, we all carry portfolios of education that would uh, equal the number of years that a doctor put in. So um, what I'm looking at is with that education and with what we bring to the table, 
um, if we stop making our runs and you put back to the volunteer basis where there's, uh, you know, not that education level, uh, even though I started as a volunteer, nothing against them, um, you're back to that education level, and then people may or may not show up for those runs. Uh, just in my local area, we make close to 10,000 calls a year, and if that was a volunteer responsibility, I highly doubt that they would get the service at all. So that would be a huge shock to the United States. Um, just throwing that out there. Uh, not to elaborate too much. Thanks again, Jack. We sincerely appreciate everything you do. Thanks for the show. And uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Well, I think like many things, the answer is it's not a cut and dry yes or no. You know, Should we have paid firefighters that are professionals? Should we have volunteers? First of all, let's, let's look at the fundamental financial reality. And I'm not saying anything against the caller, but I've got to say this with some aggression in my voice because it pisses me off if people don't understand this. When there is no more money, there is no more money, and it doesn't matter what you need or what you want or what you think you have to have because there is no more money because the money is gone because we spent the money 10 years ago and we don't have it today to pay for what we already got. So there are places, and again, this is not about the caller, but this is about this mentality across America, but we need this, we need that. You know what? At some point, you're going to do without a lot of things you think you need because we're screwed. Because we don't have the money and the nation, the nation is going bankrupt and the cities specifically and the counties and the states are bankrupt. They're already there. They're hiding it. They can only hide it for so much longer. And all of these quote unquote essential services are about to begin to be scaled back and cave in. And yes, teachers are going to get freaking laid off and firefighters and policemen and all these other people that do this stuff that we have to have. They're going to be less of them, and we're going to do without, and that's reality. So my opinion doesn't matter, and your opinion doesn't matter. Those are the cold, hard, factual realities that we better be prepared to deal with. And all the touchy-feely, whiny crap isn't going to matter because you don't get blood from a stone. So a lot of these people in these professions can either choose to work for half their freaking salary and have a job or get fired, and that's what's going to happen. And it's not fair, and I don't like it, but you know what? You can't do this crap forever and get away with it. So there's, that's the fundamental underlying financial reality. On the theory side, you know, should we have this or not? Um, depends. If you're talking about, you know, I think you said Ohio, so let's say you're talking about Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, probably need professional firefighters in Cincinnati, Ohio. Population density, uh, number of people together, total number of requirements. Uh, let's look at Minersville, Pennsylvania, where I, I largely grew up as a kid. Little town, uh, just to the other side of Pottsville, uh, had volunteer and professional fire department. Had a police force of 13. Uh, overkill. Spending money they don't have. I'm, I'm sorry, the town just doesn't need that much. It just doesn't. That town can definitely get by on all volunteer fire department. Definitely. Probably could get by with a set of 13 full-time police officers, about six, seriously, uh, and maybe a couple part-time officers, right? They, they'd only, you know, pull a certain number of shifts on the, you know, Friday, Saturday night type things. Retired officers that, uh, that still want to make a little bit of money, but, you know, drawn a pension from another department somewhere. And a lot of these small towns could do this. And I think the question is not, professional versus volunteer in the firefighter world, for instance, but where is the demarcation point 
where we need mostly uh, run by full-time professionally trained firefighters, and where do we just need volunteers. And then I think that the, the place where there's probably a tremendous savings to be had is this place in the middle where there's a lot of overlap in these smaller towns and they, you know, that maybe they need to scale back. Now I know, I know a lot of people out there that do the job. And remember, if you're a firefighter, I'll give you a discount for your service, right? So it's not that I don't value your service. It's that the money ain't there. Yes, I know if we lay a bunch of people off, they won't have jobs and they'll have to go find a new job. No, I don't like that. No, I don't think that's a good thing. But again, and this is the part that gets me so angry that the American people today can't see this. We're out of money. We can't have everything we have today. So what do we cut? And then here's the fair side. I bet there's a lot of crap we can cut before we lay off one teacher or one firefighter. A ton of crap. And I say we cut all of that crap first. But the reality is what's killing these cities and these counties is by and large not their current workforce. It's the retired workforce and the benefits and the pensions that have been negotiated. And here's the part no one wants to talk about. And this is the part the Occupy Wall Street people should be paying attention to instead of just, we hate corporate greed. A lot of the reason that these cities and counties and townships are screwed right now is they put their money into so-called safe investments and they banked on a return they were promised. And then the housing market crashed, and the banking sector crashed, and a lot of that money was lost. And the banks got bailed out, but the investors in the banks did not. So there's a lot going on here. But it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't matter. If you're in a house, right, and five people live in that house, and two of them are smokers, and it catches on fire while the fire's raging, odds are one of them two people are the reason the house caught on fire. It may not be, but odds are one of them did it. You don't have time to worry about whose fault it is, right? You want to get out of the house, And I'm telling you, this is where we are at as a nation today. I don't care that you think, you know, we need to have professional firefighters in all cities over 5,000 people. I don't care if you think that. The reality is we can no longer have departments and employee bases in the size and numbers paid at their current level with their current type of retirement and benefits because the country doesn't have the money to keep doing this. We all want spending cuts until we hear what's going to be cut. And we go, oh, not that. Oh, not this. Oh, not that. At some point, we've got to make some hard decisions. Or instead of making some tough decisions and figuring out how to deal with it as we go, the decision's going to get made for us. Right? It's like a family sitting in a house. We can make some hard decisions now. Or six months from now, when the sheriff shows up with an eviction notice, the decision will be made for us. It doesn't work quite the same way at a national, county, city, state level, but it gets so close it's eerie and it's going to really hurt. So I don't care what your job or profession is today. My statement is be prepared for this and worry less about whether it's fair or not. Because in the end, fair ain't going to matter. It's not going to be about what's fair. It's going to be about what's real. Just my thoughts. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Duff. Duff Among Us on the forum and an MSB member. I was just listening to episode 659, and I heard the gentleman call in about the blue 55-gallon drums, and I just wanted to let you guys know this summer I picked up a ton of them for 10 bucks a piece in Gillette, Wyoming, and trying to figure out how to get some glycol out of them, I decided to take them to the car wash. They had heated water, ran them with soap first, then rinsed them out really good, 
took a sample, sent it off to the lab. They said there is nothing in there. So it might be a good and effective way to get cheap 55-gallon drums and use them for what you want. Thanks. Bye. A great call. A caller also called back, elected not to play a second call, and basically said the reason he rec- he went to a um, car wash and used their facilities to do this rather than just using a pressure washer at home is drain system there goes through water treatment, uh, and it's designed to handle chemicals and things like that so that you're not polluting the environment. And more importantly, uh, with pet owners, you're not putting ethylene glycol out on your streets. We had a cat die uh, from ingesting antifreeze. It is one of the most horrible ways an animal can die. And it doesn't take a lot to kill a cat or a similar-sized animal, so I think it's a responsible way to do it. Uh, that said, I think this might be a great freaking way to get some cheap 50-gallon drums. So um, never really thought of it. Down to your local car wash, hose them out, and probably makes sense to send the water off to be tested uh, once you think it's cleaned out. But I would think with, uh, with, with ethyl glycol, it's really an alcohol. And uh, it should be one of the easier things to get rid of anyway. Uh, so I don't think there's that big of a risk, especially if you've done that, you know, kind of uh, car wash thing, rinsed it out really well, and you're using it for irrigation or something like that. Now we're down to minute trace amounts that are going to take care of themselves over time. Uh, so I, I think it's a great idea. Never really thought of it, but I'm going to start looking around, seeing if I can get me some of those drums. I've got some aquaponics stuff to build and uh, some irrigation stuff to build, and I could use some of them. So thanks for your call. And thanks for thinking about what you were doing and not rinsing this stuff out in the street and killing your neighbor's uh, animals. It's really a tough thing to go through as a family to lose an animal that way. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Thanks a lot for your show. Um, I really appreciate it. just became a member a couple of months ago. But we're renting right now. We have been for about three years in a um, suburb in, in North Dallas. We're looking to buy a house hopefully in the next six months or so. Uh, curious what you think. We definitely want to find something a little bit further out. Um, you know, like around an hour out of the city, and um, we want something with some property, you know, at least an acre, hopefully around two or three acres. I just have a quick, quick question for you. Do you think it's a good time? I know you don't think it's a good time to buy. You, just, you say it's a rent, but, um, you know, we're definitely looking to, to plant some, a big garden, and we can't do that where we're at now in the rental with the HOA. Uh, if you could just give me a couple of tips, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Um, I think if you're hearing, uh, uh, getting the message that I'm saying not to buy a house, you're thinking of somebody else. There's a lot of economists out there right now saying, don't buy a house, this is the time to rent, not to buy. And I don't think they're completely wrong, but I definitely don't think they're completely right. And I have never said not to buy a house. What I've said is don't buy a house uh, in a big city right now. Don't buy a house where uh, there's still potential for major depreciation. Don't buy a house that you think you're going to sell in the next two or three years. Don't buy a house you can't afford. Uh, don't spend more than you can on a house. Don't buy a house unless you can put at least 10 to 20% down on the house. Don't buy a house with an adjustable mortgage. Uh, try to buy a house with a 15-year mortgage if you can make the numbers work out. But I've never said not to buy a house as a cut-and-dry rule. So I don't know where you got that from, but it won from Jack Spierko. Uh, my thoughts, if you find a house right now that you can easily afford, that you can put away enough of a reserve fund where if you lost your source of income, you could pay the bills for at least minimal six months. If you can go heavy down and you find a house that you want to spend 
10 years or more in, up to including the rest of your life, this is an awesome time to buy a house. Interest rates are almost nothing. The market is depressed. It could get worse, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. There'll never be a time where we can say every indicator says go. And if there is, those are called bubbles, and they usually are followed by busts. The housing bubble has burst. There's nothing wrong with buying a house right now, unless you're doing something stupid. If you're going to go buy in an upscale neighborhood in Chicago in a trendy area where you can walk to shops and spend $600,000 on a 1,200-square-foot, two-bedroom house, a great big giant should come to your house and smack you in the face until you wake up and pay attention. But if you're going to go buy three acres out in the, you know, a little bit outside of things where you can go set up a homestead that will provide for you and you can do that in a financially responsible manner, T-Y-A. For those that don't know what that means, tear your ass. It means go do it. If everything else financially makes sense in your life. It's not about whether or not it's a good time to buy a house or a good time to buy a car or a good time to spend the money on a greenhouse or a good time to put your money in silver or a good time to start a 401. It's not about any of that. It's about is it a good time for you based on the cost, your, your cost, your income, your risk assessment, and your stability in life. And any decision you make needs to be based on you, not the market, not you know, not the, the way somebody else thinks about it. It's got to be based on what you want and what your dreams for your life are, or you're doing something for somebody else. Why do you think my last tenet of modern survival philosophy is my plan cannot, will not, and won't work for you? You must have, define, build and own your own plan if it's going to work for you. Because that's the reality. And that's what all these people that want to sell you books and informational product and you know, you know, get my monthly newsletter for $19 a month or whatever, they don't want to admit that. They want to make believe that somebody else can create a, a blueprint for you to follow that's going to make you successful in your life. They don't know what you want. So these financial gurus, quote-unquote, they're saying, oh, it's a terrible time to buy a house. Really? I guarantee you. I guarantee you the guy that says that, if I said, look, here's what I've got. I've got a brick four-bedroom house with central air and heat, a basement, solar panels on the window, 25 acres of beautiful land on the outskirts of a suburb. It's not in a town. It's not in a city. It's not completely rural. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. It was just built three years ago, and it's $50,000. Would kill each other. To get to the front of the line to buy that house. That's ridiculous, right? You're not going to find a house like that for $50,000. But my point there to illustrate to you is they don't know what the hell they're saying when they say don't buy a house because it's all relative. What are you buying for how much and where and how much money do you have? And most of these people say it's a terrible time to buy a house. They own a house, people. They're living in one right now. They're not renting. I guarantee you the majority of these people that are market traders and things like that that are making you know six figures a month, they own houses and they'll turn around and tell you not to buy a house. You know, if you really believed, right, even Mike Gazer, who I love, I've had him on and he says, I wouldn't buy a house right now. And I asked him, you know, I said, dude, do you own a house? Well, yeah. Why don't you sell it? Well, I already own it. It's already paid for. So? So What? If you really believe owning a house is a bad thing right now, wouldn't you sell your house while the getting's good? No, you're going to keep your house because it's an asset. 
So it's about buying smart and buying within your means and buying for your planned future. And your planned future, if your planned future is, I'm going to buy this house for two years, it's my starter house, and I'm going to flip it, make some money, and buy a bigger house, and I'm going to do that again and wax, rinse, and repeat. That's how this mess got started. It did not get started by little American families with three acres and a dream. It's not what caused the problem. Okay, and we, we have to be honest about that. So if you can do it right, it's a great time to buy a house. Ten years from now, it'll be a great time to buy a house. Five years ago, it was a great time to buy a house. In the middle of the boom, you could get deals. I did. It was possible. You just had to be patient. You had to think. You had to use your brain. And when your real estate agent said, but you're pre-qualified for $610,000, Mr. Spirico. I said, I don't need a $600,000 freaking house. Find me one for $120,000. Done. The end. So that's what it's really all about. Smart decisions for yourself and your family, and it's always a good time if you do that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Eric from New Jersey. Love your show. Love what you do. It's changing my life as we speak. And I uh, just wanted to point out one thing. Uh, and throughout a lot of the recent shows, questions have come up uh, on your behalf and others. What can we do? What are the things we can do to prepare, to help, to fight against the changes in government and everything? And you touched upon this point and stated it quite clearly way back in 2009 in one of the episodes when I listened to them recently. Uh, you got to pass out everybody in government. And so firing the incumbents in office is the solution. And I encourage you to speak about this. I think the whole show is deserved on this one topic. Uh, your listeners should think this about this. And uh, all American citizens who really care about this country and want to turn things around and prevent the damage that is occurring and go back to the way things should really be, should just go out there every time there's a vote, make sure you head out to the polls and pick anybody else but the incumbent. No matter how much you like them or hate them, vote against the incumbent, fire the politicians, send them the message, let them know what it feels like to be unemployed. We shouldn't be loyal to any one of them from the uh, local town offices, mayors, uh, judges, all the way up to state legislatures, governors, and all the way up to Congress and the president. Fire them every single time, toss them out of office, and vote someone you in. And if you're truly a patriot and really care, vote for the third party. Vote out the Democratic-Republican monopoly and give 5% or more to the third party. So they get matching funds for the election and they can get greater strength and provide greater choice. Well, two really separate issues there. First of all, outstanding call, well thought out, well put together. Don't completely agree, um, but uh, agree with the sentiment. And uh, on the first part, let's start with the first part. Getting rid of all the incumbents, I'm in agreement with. But I'm going to tell you what the standardized objection is. Well, um, the guy that's running against my incumbent, I hate even more than the incumbent. And looking at this as a political atheist and just trying to put myself into the the, the standpoint of the, the voter, Let's say I'm a pro-gun person. Uh, odds are that I want to vote if I'm going to vote for the incumbent right now. He's pro-gun, and the 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 other guy's anti-gun. 
right? Now, you know me, I'm pro-gun, I'm pro-constitution, I'm libertarian, so I'm going to want to support a Second Amendment regardless. But just putting myself into the mind of the voter, what if the voter's the exact opposite? They want more gun control, more gun regulation. How do you expect that person to vote for someone that's like a you know A-plus rated guy by the NRA when the incumbent there has been speaking out for more gun control for years and trying to work for it and legitimately trying to do it? So I have the actual solution to this, and it does not involve general elections. Uh, in fact, I'll, I put together a forum one time and just never ran with this, um, and I think it'd make a great website. It's called Fire Them in March. And the reason March is not always when the primaries are, but it's kind of the big primary time. This is when you get rid of these people so that the person that is a, you know, and I don't, I'm, again, I'm a political atheist. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this at a level that will work for the national mindset, not where I'm at. Because I'm going to get to where I'm at when I get to the third party thing here in a minute. Uh, but if you are a diehard Republican and you really think that's going to fix things, or you're a diehard Democrat, if the person doing the job sucks, kick their ass out in the primaries. You probably live in a district where a dog could run as a Republican, or conversely, a dog could run as a Republican and win. And that's how these ass clowns stay in office. A couple thousand people on a mission in a congressional district can swing a primary like that. You want to vote the incumbents out, fire them in the freaking primaries. And that way you can do your nonsense in the general election where you really think Democrat or Republican matter. And I'll tell you what, if we started firing these clowns every single primary season, it might matter. Because right now, voting out the incumbents will do nothing. It will do nothing because you have a fully funded, bought and paid for candidate on both sides of just about every race, especially at the national level. So if you want to change that, you got to go get rid of those people in the primary so that in the general election when the mindless masses come out and 90% of them just pull the D or the R for everybody... They'll be pulling the D or the R for a new D or a new R. That is the only way this will work. Getting rid of incumbents in the general election in general will not work. Now, third party thing. That was a great point, and it's one I have not made. And it's one I, I need to start making for all of you. You don't want to waste my vote, people. You're wasting your vote. If you're voting for an ass clown, you don't want, because he's the lesser of two evils, that is the very definition to me of a wasted vote. But there's a very important number in there that I've never brought up. If we give the Libertarian Party 5% of the vote for president in a general election, for two cycles, 5% or more, for two consecutive election cycles. They have to be recognized at that point as a legitimate third party. And you know, a lot of the election is paid for with public money. Okay. In fact, a huge portion of the election, the Democrat and the Republican both get a great big chunk of change, the nominee, and they get to run commercials and all their stuff with that. They get that public funding. If a Libertarian or a Green Party or any third party... Two cycles, 5%, they get official national recognition, and that two-party system becomes a legitimate three-party system. We do not have to win an election to win an election. Let me put it to you that way. We can win legitimacy for a third party with a 5% two-election cycle consecutive showing. And at that point, the legitimacy allows us to win a future election. And if we care about saving this republic, we need to start thinking about longer into the future than just next year. And I'm going to tell you that the majority of you live in states 
where when you vote for president of the United States of America, your vote doesn't mean diddly frickin' squat. Unless we're talking about Bush Gore in Florida, okay, and some stuff in Ohio, in the majority of states, the state was going to go to one guy or the other, and if, if half the people changed their mind, it wouldn't have changed anything. So, If we can do that, we can actually bring legitimacy to a third party. And it is a new way to think about things. And it probably is a message that we need to take nationally at a much higher level. And then here's the beauty of this. Okay, Let's say you like to get the incumbent out thing. You like all of that stuff. Well, you can go in the primaries, right? And you can vote against the incumbent in a party. And we can throw the bums out. And you can still turn around the general election and vote your conscience. And basically, you've, if, when, with these districts, folks, come on. How do you think these people stay in office for 13 consecutive freaking terms? Because whoever's there is a Republican or a Democrat in some of these districts, they're not going. How do you think Maxine Waters still has a job? Because no one successfully challenged her in the primaries. That's why. I, I could put Max, the German shepherd there, as a Democrat in that district, and he would win. We had an election where a dead guy won. The guy was dead. He ran against John Ashcroft. It was in Missouri or something like that. Ashcroft lost to a dead guy. A dead man won the election. Why? Because the district is going to swing the direction that it always swings. So fire them in freaking March. Make the change when a few thousand people in a congressional district can do it. Bring in new blood and then turn around the general election if it's where your principles are and vote that third party. And here's why I'll put it that way. I believe I believe that it's much easier to sell the first idea to the vast majority of people. I believe more than 5% of you have principles that would push you to a libertarian or a different third party. I believe there's more than 5% of us. I don't need people, if you really feel, if your conscience is, vote for Mitt Romney in the, or Rick Perry, who's going to be your nominee, by the way. If that's really your, vote for who, if Barack Obama, vote for him. Vote wherever your conscience is. But if your conscience is, neither of these people, then pick none of the above. Put a 5% showing two election cycles in a row, and let's make this thing legitimate, and then we can have legitimate challenges. Just a thought. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Show you.